0: All right. Um, Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 13 today, but I want to give a little bit of background, okay? Um, Last week, we started this series in the Sermon on the Mount, and we really tried to focus on two main ideas. The first main idea, as we looked at the Beatitudes, um, was that these are uh, a, a contrasting and competing ethic or politic of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world, that if you look over the Beatitudes, you will notice there is a stark contrast in difference between the life that it tells the Christian to lead um, versus the life that the world tells the given, any given person to lead for their 80 or 90 years here on this earth. And we have to decide, hear me, especially if you're here and you're a Christian, in some ways you've already made your decision. I just don't know if you've actually already made your decision. That we have to decide which ethic, which story do we truly want to live for and buy into. Will our lives, our hearts, our souls, our, our, uh, what we do with ourselves, will it be crafted by and shaped by the Beatitudes or by a separate ethic? Uh, an ethic of the world that often tells you that you're the most important thing ever and everything should revolve around you and your comfort and your security and your wealth and your gain and your, your, your. Whereas the competing ethic of the Bible is constantly and consistently, this is about others. Right, this ethic, first and foremost, is, is about God, right? That, that we live for His glory, and we're going to talk about that a little more today. And then we exist for the, the benefit of other people. I can't remember who said the quote, but it's, we are the only organization, the Christian church is the only organization in the world that exists primarily for the benefit of its non-members. That if we look throughout history, this is something that's not new to the church, but that we are in the same people, the same ancestry as the Old Testament, where God has called in the Abrahamic covenant with the Jewish people that they were blessed to be a blessing. We, too, are now that same thing. If you're here and you call yourself a Christian, this is now what you've signed up for. Do we believe it? Do we live it out? That's the questions that we have to engage with, and the Sermon on the Mount, I think, helps us do that. The second thing that we talked about last week that I think is important for us to understand today is that the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, they need to be the lens with which we view the rest of the sermon, Uh, because a lot of the things that you'll read here in this sermon are extremely difficult at first glance, Right to allow someone to hit you twice, right? if they take something from you to go with them an extra mile, on and on and on. Living for a sacrificial life for the sake of the other is not easy, but the first 12 verses of the Bible are to be the lens with which we view the rest. In other words, if we live with our hearts so transformed and conformed to the first 12 verses that establish a heart understanding and motive for our love for Jesus, the rest of it should be quite easy. But if we can figure out the heart stuff... The external application usually should come right behind it. I love my wife, and so hopefully uh, she knows that by the way, then the way that I express that love that is in my heart. If we love and we are shaped by the gospel, the Beatitudes, this new ethic of the kingdom of God, the rest of the external, which most of the Sermon on the Mount focuses on, will get easy for us. So the question today is, as you've read, and many of us, we talked about last week, raise your hands, how many people have read the Sermon on the Mount, most of you guys knew it or read it. You knew at least a couple one-liners from it, right? The golden rule is in there. <clears throat> do, we, do we think that the calling in the Sermon on the Mount is easy? Or is it getting easier? Or is it doable? If you answer no to all that, then I need you to go back and revisit the Beatitudes and, and try and define, do I actually believe this? Or does my heart actually want to buy into this ethic that the God and the gospel has given me? Okay, Then you look, look towards the actions of your life. Says, does my life measure up with the things of the, uh, of, of the Sermon on the Mount? And if it's no, well then hey, listen, we need to be able to be honest with where we're at as a church and as individuals, as Christians, to constantly ask for God to search us and know us and make us more like Christ. These are all really important things that, again, I think the Sermon on the Mount does for us. Now, some of us might sit here and say, well, you know, I, I just don't know if I'm there yet. And I, I want to read this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says this. He says, there are certain general lessons I suggest to be drawn from the Beatitudes, is what we talked last week, okay? First, all Christians are to be like this. Read the Beatitudes, and there you have a description of what every Christian is meant to be. It is not merely a description of some exceptional Christians. Our Lord does not say he's going to paint a picture of what certain outstanding characters are going to be and can be in this world. It is rather his description of every single Christian. So, if we go back and read, does that define us? It should, right? that's, That's what we tried to lay down last week, is that it certainly should. But there's a reality in the midst of this that we have to look at our lives and say, man, but if that's true, if if my faith, if God's love whatever is dependent on my obedience and conformity and looking just like the first 12 verses of Matthew, I think every one of us would admit we're in trouble because we fail all the time. Even this week, I'll share this story. So uh, Finley, who's my little two-year-old toddler, and I mean, he is an incredible kid, but every once in a while, man, I tell you, he just loses it, okay? And so we get to a uh, bedtime and we have this really sweet bedtime routine, right? We go bath time, take them out of the bath, we dry them off. Lay him down, diaper, uh, pajamas, and then here's what we do. We go and sit in this black chair. I sit first. He sits on my lap, and then we read books, right? We read the books. We finish up with some prayer stuff from, uh, from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which he calls the Big Jesus Book, It's awesome, and then uh, we, we get done with that. Uh, we pray together, and then I put him down, and then we sing, Lord, I need you, and doxology, and then he falls asleep, and angels are there, and it's amazing. So about three nights ago, this is mid-flu season or whatever I've got going on right now, okay? My wife is gone right now in Boston, and so I'm I'm single-parenting this week, okay? Um, Also, my son broke his leg, and so uh, every bone in my body hurts when I do anything, and I have to pick up this 30-pound rock to bring him everywhere, right? And so I'm holding on to him, but he decides a few nights ago, you know what, Dad, I want to sit in the chair, and I don't want you to sit here with me, But I want you, and he just starts barking out orders, right? And I'm already not feeling well. And so um, what do I do? I I handle it like an adult. No. What I did was I said, fine, Finley. You want to act that way? Sit there then. I'm going to go sit over here, and we're going to have a stare-off. And you're going to break first. I literally had, right, this moment with my two-year-old son, where I was like, dude, you're going to break. And I'm going to stare at you until you do. And he's thinking to himself, like, are you serious? I'm two. <laughs> and things are running through my mind. Okay, blessed are the meek, for they will to hurt the earth. Right? I'm like, okay, so I don't need to win every argument. We talked about this last week. And I'm fighting with my two-year-old about sitting in a black chair blessed of peacemakers, and yet I want to continue discord until he all of a sudden figures out how to apologize, repent, and then read a book himself, okay? And then here's what happens. In this moment of, think of Holy Spirit ingenuity, he he straightens me out using a stuffed animal. And so if we can bring this up, I look up and then I see, can you guys see this? I see this giraffe staring at me, right? Now, you can't tell as much but I'm sitting down and this is in his nursery and I'm on the floor and I'm I'm like praying God like stop being like don't let me be an idiot anymore and I look up and I see this giraffe looking at me like are you serious? (laughs) Like you see how his head is slightly tilted and if you could see his mouth his lips are pursed as to say you're a moron right? And the Lord used this giraffe I'm not even kidding flu does crazy stuff to a man to call me out of my silliness. And here's the thing. Like, I, I bring up this illustration to show you how fickle our hearts are. That, that I, I mean, I was practically yelling last week about the life that we're supposed to live. We don't need to win arguments. And here I am fighting with my two-year-old about a chair. And then God used a giraffe to call me out. We will fail at this ethic all the time. Such is the goodness and greatness of the gospel. We landed there last week that everything in the Beatitudes, every single one of those difficult things that are going to be hard for us to achieve, and every single one of the things that you will read throughout the Sermon in the Mount that you're like, gosh, this seems difficult, has been fully accomplished once and for all by Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, that is the good news for us, because I imagine that without him, we would just crush under the weight of the expectation of the ethic of the kingdom of God. But instead, because Jesus has gone before us, accomplished it first, we now have a shot. So we can take the demands of the Sermon on the Mount seriously, because today is gonna be heavy. Today's gonna be intense, and I'm gonna tell you right up front, the audience for this text is not the world. The audience for this text is not the non-Christians. And listen, I hear you that you're, that you're in the room, and you'll gain some stuff from this, but I'm gonna be yelling at the church for a little bit. Because the reality of the two metaphors that Jesus uses to call out the mission and the role of the church in society today, they are for Christians to, uh, to, to abide in and to live by, right? So we'll get to it. Never mind. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. For the first, so the first metaphor is salt, right? Sodium, chloride. And it says, Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth. What could this possibly mean? Now, I don't know how many of you guys have studied salt at length. But it has some different things that it contributes to the world. Primarily, especially at this time, the number one thing would have been preservation. Right? So if you take salt and you pack it on food, it preserves food longer. And here's why: it goes on to the food, it draws out water from any food, it will draw water out of it, and so bacteria cannot grow inside that food. Right? It brings health to the meat, to the food product by removing what would destroy it down the road once bacteria sets in. So, so let, let's. okay, what, what could Jesus be getting at then? If, if we are the salt of the earth, the, the church, again, he's talking to the disciples, you are the salt of the earth, what could he be getting at? I wonder if he's saying, man, are you engaging culture? Are you engaging people? Are you with people in such a way that you are drawing out sin, you're drawing out brokenness, you're drawing out pain, you're drawing out hurt, you're drawing out past issues and situations that have so marred and shaped people that they don't even know that they're rejecting God or others. Is our engagement with the world helping to take bad out of people's life that good might flourish? Think about your relationships right now. When you look around, are you in a place where you are engaging with the people around you in such a way that you are part of their redemptive story, you are mending broken wounds, and you're doing all of these things that they might see more clearly the goodness of God? If not, right? If not, then you're not living according to the ethic of the kingdom of God that you have signed up for, and I have signed up for. Now, salt does some other things as well. It's also a seasoning. I've heard it makes margaritas better, but that's for you drunkards. (laughs) It melts snow, although not in Flagstaff because we're environmentally conscious, but in other places around the world, salt melts snow, right? In other words, what I think salt does, it just makes life better. We don't need to push the metaphor too far, I think, just to say salt makes life better. Now, my uh, my dad, he's Irish Catholic. His parents were from Ireland, moved here, and, uh, and most of the British, especially apparently, my dad's grandparents, just didn't use salt on anything, right? So, I mean, every night was just dry turkey, uh, was mashed potatoes with no seasoning, and some type of green with no seasoning, and that's just what they ate 24/7, no salt. Right, when my dad learned about this magic ingredient called salt, his life changed. He gained like 100 pounds. All of a sudden, food could be tasty. Salt makes things better. Does your presence and engagement with the people and the culture around you make it better? Or, or does it just kind of do nothing? Do you have that type of effect on the people around you that they'd say, yeah, because this person is here, my life is genuinely better. See, the church, and this is not just the church, the people of God have throughout history been called to seek the flourishing and prosperity of the culture. We, we were called to engage. We, we were called to point people to God ultimately, but in the midst of that, also bless and help people live life and navigate this world. We were called to help draw out sin from people's life. So, so listen, if, if you have a friend, right, who's, who's in sin, right? No, no, you, this is the church. We judge each other. That's okay. We're going to talk about that in just a bit. In a few weeks, I think that's coming up. Because sin destroys. Are you are preserved of helps remove bad, remove sin, that good might flourish. In other words, are you, are you able to help remove sin that God's presence might grow because it's sin that separates us from God? Do you engage with people that their life looks markedly better because you, you know a better way? God created this world. Surely then he knows how it best works, right? So when we call people to that, it should make life better. Now, here's a problem we talked about it a little bit last week, is that we defined the good life a little bit differently than the world. See, the Beatitudes for us, blessed is, blessed is, blessed is, that for us is the good life of the Christian kingdom. Now, the good life of the world, and we talked about it last week, and we don't have time to today, is in stark contrast to that. And so sometimes there's some navigation that we have to do in the midst of it to try and figure this out. But are we even there? Are we even engaging? Are we being what Christ has already called us to be? Okay. Now, this, this, this second part of, of verse 13 is, is somewhat interesting, right? If salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. Under people's feet. Now, now, listen, some people will look at this text and they've used this text to talk about uh, one, a Christian losing uh, your salvation or their salvation, right? That, listen, if, if you, were, you, you were once granted this identity of salt, but then you've lost your saltiness, how could it be restored again? And so some people say, well, that, that clearly means that you were a Christian and then you lost it, right? You lost your saltiness, you lost your salvation. I disagree with that, and here's why. Because even if salt loses its saltiness, it doesn't stop being salt. It's still salt. Plus, this is a metaphor, so don't overthink it. Salt is still salt no matter what its mission continues to be. It just isn't a good one. Now, let me be very clear with what I'm saying here. I am not making a judgment statement on your value before God. God loves you more infinitely than I could ever describe to a single person in this room if I had the rest of my life to sit down and talk to you about it. But this text is attacking the mission of the church. And it's simply saying, listen, if, if church, if, if you are called to this, and yet all of a sudden the word that you preach and your engagement with the culture, and your engagement with people who don't know about the gospel... Right, because again, uh, Jesus is talking to disciples, and the crowds are on the outside kind of listening. He said, do you see them? Like, if you fail, if if you don't go, if your mission is stuttered, if you lose your saltiness, what good are you? You're still a Christian. You're just not a good one. Hear me. This is not about your value. It's just about are we taking seriously what the Bible says about what we're supposed to do with our lives here? We're supposed to be giving it away. We're supposed to be blessing others. Our presence and engagement with the world is supposed to make it healthier and better and more God-honoring. And if that's not happening, no wonder why our culture seems to hate the message of the church and the mission of the church. There's this attack on Christianity within our culture. And I, listen, I pretty much agree. I mean, it is coming. And I wonder if it's not just our fault. We want to blame all these other things. I just wonder if it's on us. Because I just wonder about the message that we preach. I wonder about our engagement. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but Vince, dude, they killed Jesus, right? I mean, they, they killed Jesus, so that obviously, you know what I mean, if they, if they were to kill him, then sure they're going to hate us too. And, and a couple things to that. One, man, they killed Jesus for vastly different reasons than why people hate the church right now. They didn't, they didn't kill Jesus because he was calling them out in their sin. Right? They, they, didn't, they hated Jesus because he was starting something that was going to start eating away at their power structures, at their finances, at all types of things within their kingdoms that they had built. It's a little bit different. And then here, if you wanna bring that, that opposition to what I'm saying this morning, then let's sit down and let's talk about our lives, let's talk about the witness of the church in our culture, and let's actually see, are we doing what the Bible calls us to do? Or will we say that when we, think, when we think through the witness of the church to the world right now, does it look like the Beatitudes? Is that the heart posture that we have when we go to the world? Is is it such a sense that we're we're, we're getting into people's lives to the degree that we're making their lives better or healthier, that the gospel might flourish in their lives? Is that true? Now, maybe it is for us in little individual pockets, but I will tell you that across the landscape of our country, that is not what people see nor think. So I looked up some stats for us. This is from a book called Good Faith, written by Gabe Lyons and uh, and, uh, David Kinnaman. Thanks, man. Hashtag flu. Um, And they said this. If you think 75% of the country, thinks you can live the good life outside of faith. Okay, 75% of our country thinks you can live the good life outside of faith. Now, this is somewhat concerning for me because 75% of our country still identifies as Christian. So 75% of our country thinks they're Christians, yet they would also say, yeah, but I don't really need faith for a good life what in the world are you there for? Next one, 42% of the country believes Christians are part of the problem and not part of the solution for the issues in our day. Okay? So so not even just kind of a middle ground, like, I don't know, they're all right. It's they think we're part of the problem and not the solution, okay? 20% think that clergy, oh, sorry, only 20% think that clergy, the pastor myself, are a credible source of wisdom. Only tw- one in five people think that anything I say has any wisdom to it. Well, that's unfortunate. But to just leave these statistics behind would be silly. Now maybe some of us are thinking, well maybe that, that's like, you know they polled the entire country. What about my circle, of my life? So I've just been asking people from Flagstaff this week. It's random people, baristas, servers, ran people I ran into, you know, with kind of a hand over my mouth. I said, hey, what do you think of the church here in Flagstaff, Arizona? Okay, what what do you think of the church? And they're like, you know, everyone's a little weirded out at first. I said, here's kind of what I'm doing, and I just would love to hear your thoughts. And I I got a good amount of answers. And listen, this obviously isn't an exhaustive poll. I didn't poll the entire city of 75,000 people and 20,000 at the university. But here's some general answers. I'd say about one-third were negative, One-third were negative. One guy even saying we're a complete waste of space, right? That other things would be way better off to be in the areas that we're at, okay? We shouldn't be here, you know, that type of thing. So one-third were about negative. I'd say about 15% uh, were were somewhat positive. No one had a glowing uh, response about the church. There was just some, that's pretty good, I guess. Like, they're not doing any harm, why not, you know? If it helps them, a lot of that kind of stuff. So somewhat positive, about 15%. About 50% of the answers. Can anyone guess what 50% of the answers were? Let's throw something out there. Go ahead. What? Perfect. I did not. I don't know. I have no idea. 50% of the people I asked, I don't know. Where's the church? I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. What is the church supposed to of the people I ask, and again, listen, I don't know if that's the perfect example and sample size for our entire community, but when you have 83% of the community either thinking negatively or apathetically about the one aspect, uh, I would say, about the greatest common grace given to this world, and they know nothing about it or hate it, then we're in trouble. I would argue the church is to be the greatest gift of common grace to the world. Common grace meaning God is sustaining this world, right? So, so for everyone, it's not just for Christians, not, it's for everybody. God gives breath and air and life and sustains the world and doesn't destroy us and gives us good things and takes away bad things and on and on. That is his common grace. Let's say his greatest agent of common grace in the world is supposed to be the church. And 83% of our city either doesn't know about it or thinks negatively about it. This is a problem, and we can't just blame it on them. It's just, that's just silly if we were to do that. So we have to look introspectively and say, okay, okay, Bible, what do you got for me? Okay, Beatitudes, does this shape my heart? Okay, Sermon on the Mount, is this an ethic that I live by? And if not, why not? What are the connections that we are missing? Okay, let's... <laughs> Let's keep going. Okay, if we didn't get it uh, in the first illustration, we'll get another one. <clears throat> 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Okay, so you are the light of the world. Church, Christians, hear me. You are to be the lights of the world. This is your identity. Salt of the earth light of the world. This is who you're supposed to be, okay? What does this mean? What does light do? And I I thought the best way probably to to do it was most of us know what light does in the world, right? We can see in here because of it, right? When we go outside, the sun illuminates. We get kind of what it does, but I wanted to show you what scripture says. Lights, the word for light is used 60 times in scripture, and here's just kind of a a gentle swath of what the Bible says about light. Psalm 119, light shows us God's path. Matthew 4 draws us from darkness. John 1 overcomes darkness. 1 John enables fellowship. Psalm 27 rejects fear. Luke 11 denotes health. Psalm 119 grants understanding. And Ecclesiastes 2 is better than anything. Okay. So, so the Bible seems to have this high view of light, and then all of a sudden, Jesus says, yeah, you are that to the world, So let's reread this. Church, you are to show the world God's past. You are to draw them from darkness. You are to help them overcome darkness. You are to enable true fellowship. You are to help them reject fear, denote health, grant understanding, and show them that God is better than anything else in this world. That is what you're supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. And we don't often enough. And it's not their fault. We can only be responsible for, for what we do, how we, to engage, how we choose to engage that which we believe we've been called to. So, so what, do, what do we do with this, man? Like this is... Again, like I started in the beginning, we, ha- we have to start in reminding ourselves that the gospel is so good and it can give us the confidence, right? We can understand the gospel frees us from feeling shame or guilt in this moment, but rather opportunity to be the people of God. We don't need to feel condemned by this. I mean, I, I know we can easily go there. We live in that culture. We kind of want to slap each other and say, no, it's not good enough. That's not what we're saying. The reality of the gospel is we could never be good enough, but in Christ we are more than good enough because of him. And so we can take this teaching and say, all right, man, let's do it. I'll fail, but that's all right, I'll get up tomorrow because Jesus got out of the grave. So don't hear, please don't hear judgment and condemnation because I'm sitting underneath this same teaching and I'm having arguments with my two-year-old. But this is not what church is meant for more than I think we've allowed her to become in our culture. Okay, Um, Where are we at here? Has anyone ever seen the the movie, The Christmas Story? Come on, let's do a little engagement. Okay, there's a lot of you. If you haven't, raise your hand. Okay, so there's a bunch of liars. There's not a third option. You've either seen it or not. That is, there was like half of you just were like, "I don't know." Maybe you don't know. Um, in that movie, there's this uh, there's this lamp that gets given as a gift. Yeah, now you've seen it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Without getting too descriptive. Okay. It is a, somewhat of an inappropriate lamp to broadcast in your front room to the entire street. I bring up this story because I, I remember thinking about this the last time I watched it, and it's one of my wife's and I, favorite movies to watch in the Christmas season. What happens is the father wins this special prize, and what shows up in the mail is a lamp that's made in the shape of a leg wearing a, like a, a net, net stocking. I don't even know what you'd call those things. Uh, Fish net. Who said that? All right. That was a weird way to say, all right, I feel weird. Um, <laughs> sorry. Wearing a fishnet, ah, oh, jeez. <laughs> it's the flu. <laughs> With a fishnet stocking, he puts it in the front room and it illuminates, and all of a sudden, here's what people do, right? So they, it's sitting it's sittin there in the living room. It's shining light out. You can see it from the street. If everyone remembers a scene from the movie, people start walking, and they look up, and they see it. And what do they do? Just... Don't whisper. I'm You're still whispering. still whispering, come on. They stop, gosh, you guys, let's go. They stop, they look, and they begin to ask questions. Because there's a couple things about the lamp. One, it, it's shining light, and so that's a kind of an initial attractiveness. The light is shining, and so okay, what's that? And then they look upon that light, and they realize, man, it is a different kind of lamp. There's something extremely distinct about that lamp that I have seen nowhere else in this world. You see, I think the the church has little problem being a shining light. I think we have a problem with our distinctiveness. I think we're loud. I think people, on the whole, know something called the church exists across our culture. I think they see us on news programs. I think they read some of the blogs. I think we're loud enough, right? Like I, th- I think that the people know that the church is around. I think maybe even still a little bit in our culture, they know a little bit about what maybe the Bible might say in one-liners and stuff that's etched on pillows at their grandmother's house. But I think our distinctiveness is off. I think too often the church and its members looks too much like the world and its members. And, and so why come here? Why talk to you about God? You're the same as me. You don't offer me anything different. You live the same life I live. You do the same things I do. You chase after the same idols I chase after. You're just as much about wealth as I am. You're just as much about status as I am. You're just as much about climbing the ladder and stepping on people as I am. You're just as much about greed as I am. You're just as much about hoarding your money instead of sacrificial generosity as I am. Now listen, some of you are here like, dude, I'm awesome. Then great, thank you for being one of the awesome Christians. But even as I look at my life, and if I were to truly triage my life, and I say this to you often, I find myself oftentimes, my actual actions of my life seem to identify more with the kingdom of this world than the kingdom of God that Scripture calls me to. And that's not okay. And I need to repent. I need to live differently. I I think we shine plenty. I just think... What we're shining is not very good, and it looks just like what they've already got. What the Sermon on the Mount does, again, is it offers up a contrasting ethic and a contrasting version of what the good life is that has God at the center and not us. And I tell you, that is better than anything the world could produce. We scramble all the time, whether it be in church or in our parachurch organizations or even just in your life, trying to craft this beautiful version of what the Christian life is, right? So you, you show up to churches, and, okay, so like for, for existence here, like, man, okay, so we, we do things with the lights so that you guys are more engaged during worship and we want the band to do this. You go to some other churches, I'm not even trying to attack this right now, but they, they got smoke and they've got crazy beams going everywhere and stuff like that. And what we've done is we've tried to say, listen, what's going to attract people to Christ? is how we package him instead of just Christ himself. The packaging does nothing, guys. If Jesus wants to save, Jesus saves. If Jesus wants to grow his church, Jesus grows his church. If Jesus disbands his church, he disbands his church. We are so focused on trying to give the world what they already have in a convenient Jesus package, we forget Jesus. We need to not just shine, we need to shine distinctively and offer the world something better, a true version and vision of the good life. They have alternative lights that they're looking to in this world already. Pleasure, status, position, whatever the things are of our culture right now. These are the lights that they are attracted to, that are speaking loudly to them, that they're buying into, and we can't just be another one of those lights yelling from the same direction. It's gotta be something different, and it has to just be Jesus. Jesus in us, shaping us, our lives looking different in response, and because of that, calling people to something better than just what they already see and know. There's a couple good things that I'm going to land with here. I think I might keep you at just a couple minutes long. I do apologize, but um, two things that, in the midst of this, that I think allow us and allow me even this week as I'm reading this and just feeling, man, like all right, let's 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 get this going. I gotta I gotta dial some things in here. I gotta think through and answer and ask or ask and answer some hard questions. There's a couple pieces of good news for us. One, and this is a very important observation, is that you being salt and you being light to the world, you living out the Beatitudes, you living out the rest of the calling on the Sermon on the Mount, is not dependent on only you. Read this quote. It says, This it says, the address here in the Sermon on the Mount in this passage is in the second person plural not only because more than one person is being addressed, but because it is the corporate impact of a disciple community as an alternative society which is here in view. The hilltop town is a symbol not of an individual, but of a collective impact of the whole community. Modern Western individualism is such that we easily think of the light of the world as a variety of little candles shining but rather it is the collective light of a whole community which draws the attention of the watching world. Okay, so it's not just about you. It's not, it's not about, and, and this is so hard for us in our culture, right, we're, we're just this kind of John Wayne, pull yourself up by your bootstrap mentality, I'm gonna change the world, that type of thing, okay? It's not about just you, and this is good news. It's not on you to go and change NAU, college students. It's not on you to go change CCC. It is on the church to be transformative communities within those places and structures. So that's why we need community. It's why we need each other. It's why we don't go off by ourselves. It's why we engage our places, our city, our coworkers, the families, our neighbors with the gospel. And we do it together. This is, this is good news. This helps me breathe easier because I, I know it's, it's not just up to me to go to the city of Flagstaff and hopefully see change. It, it's up to all of us, right? And, and guess what? We're not the only church in town. There's like 50 other churches. We pray for a different one usually every Sunday before the sermon because we believe this that much. It's not just about Redemption Church reaching the city of Flagstaff. It's about God using his people, his church, to change and redeem the world. The implications of this are vast, but I just wanna leave you with that is good news for you because it's not just on you this morning. It's on the person to the left and right of you if that person loves Jesus. Let me just take a moment and say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to thank you for coming. And I know oftentimes you come into this type of setting and you might assume you're the only, only one here who's feeling that or is identifying with that. That's just not true here. There is, is more of you here than you'd believe. And so for all of you, I just want to say thank you for coming. And I want to encourage you a couple things. Please don't let the failures of the witness of the church mar the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. He is perfect. He is good. He is faithful. And he died for you. And he didn't stay dead. He literally came back to life three days later so that wherever you're at in life, you too could experience new life. I invite you to that. So if when you look left or right, and you're like, well, I'm not a Christian, and I, I want to invite you to, to become one just by believing in him. And then tell a person to the left or right who's now feeling convicted about having to be a better Christian that, uh, that you just became one and you need to be discipled. The second good news for us is just that. It's the good news. It's the gospel. It's the same, way, same thing. we try and land this every single week with the same... Same thing, right? That that gospel good news to know what does this mean for us. And so um, ironically, in the midst and in contrast to what I just told you, this truly is and actually dependent only on one person. And it's just Jesus. First and foremost, it's always Jesus. John 8 tells us this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life so the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I too bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Jesus is the light that we have always since the beginning of time failed to be. And he shines perfectly and shines brightly from day one on until the end of time, which doesn't actually happen. Jesus is the light when we fail to be the light. Jesus fulfilled everything that we could not fulfill. He died the death that we deserve to die. He lived the life we could not live. And again, he rose to give us new life. Every morning, new mercies and new graces that we could get up and try this crazy life again. This is good news for us this morning. Because if you were as as this man, the weight of the calling of the Christian in the Sermon on the Mount, if that weighs on you, I, if you feel that burden, I pray that you are reminded of the words of Christ that asks and calls you to take that burden away from you and rather take upon his yoke, which is easy in life. That burden is not yours to carry. He's already carried it. And because of that, now we go. We go with reckless abandon to the world to love them in such a way that it's different and shines brightly. That is the calling of the church. And So in verse 16, my exhortation to us, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So church, go, give away this light, but let us also remember that the light that we have to give It's gotta be centered around Christ and not just more of what the world's got. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, church. So let's start living like it, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Because, um, man, we are, at least I am, a total mess without you, God. I don't often say the right things, do the right things, treat people the way I should. God, I really have no excuse. It's not like I don't know what you've told me. God, and so we confess today In some ways, God, just our lack of just true obedience. Like sometimes, God, we're just boldly disobedient when we know the way you've called us to live. God, the Sermon on the Mount is not something that's just meant to be taken lightly, and I don't know how it could be. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a church and as your people that we'd really have to process through the difficult questions of, do I really believe this stuff? And God, are you truly better? Did you really ask me to go talk to that person? To love someone that I just don't want to love right now. God, I pray for everyone here. God, regardless of what the things are that are churning through their minds and their hearts right now, of whether it be, again, as we said last week, God, not, not legalism, but rather conviction. God, that you would just show them just a better way. God, they feel so encouraged by your love for them. As we say here, God, that you love us more than we could God, than we could ever hope. I pray your love would just fill us, shape us, mold us, make us more like yourself. That the community of God would rally around each other to be the community of God. So we know we don't have to go off and do this on our own, but rather, God, that we do this united as the church in our city and across our world to bring good news, to bring light, to bring freedom, to bring redemption, to bring hope. God, I thank you that you did not just let us keep this to ourselves. God, but you want to bring this to the world because you love everyone. And so, Lord, lastly, I just pray that we would all have your heart. God, that we would feel for your creation the way that you feel for your creation. We'd feel for those who are hurt and broken the way you feel for those who are hurt and broken. That we'd feel for those who do not know you the way that you feel for those who do not know you. Our hearts are fickle, so God, conform our hearts to yours. And Lord, please use us. Please use us to be your people. Not just in this place, but in every place that we find ourselves at any given moment of every day for every day that we shall live. Constantly, Lord, constantly make us more like your son. And save those. Save those even here today. God, who don't know you. Jesus, we thank you for your love and your grace. And for your name, amen.